Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. The scripture for today's teaching is Mark 13, 14 through 31. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the house not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the heaven, the ends of heaven, from the fig, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the, that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the word of God to us. God. All right. Good morning. Hey, thanks, Camille. Whoa, let me trip on my way up. You can take it and just set it down on there. Thank you so much. Hey, good morning. Uh, If we've not had the chance to meet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. I would love the chance to meet you uh, after the service, but it's really good to have you with us today. Uh, In no way do I want to shame anyone who is not here last week, but I'm just curious, if you were here last week, would you raise your hand so I can see? Man, thank you for coming back. I surely thought, I was like, we've killed the church. I I don't, like, it's going to be me and my family, and that was even questionable if they were going to show up, so... We're glad that you came back. We are in a really uh, interesting, bizarre, fun, beautiful, complicated stretch of the Gospel of Mark. And I just want you to know this is not like a hobby horse type thing for our church. We're preaching through this whole book. And we happen to land in what is one of the most difficult chapters in the whole Bible, Mark 13. And so we're going to take three weeks total. Last week was our first week. And then this week and next week to really work our way slowly through the text uh, as we continue on in our series. So, man... Great to have you. Thanks for coming. Uh, If you weren't offended last week, there's still time for that to happen. So today might be your day. All right, let me take a second and pray for us. Father, thank you for the gift that it is to lean into your word. Thank you for the gift that it is to study scripture. And even though this is such a weird sermon for me to preach, I pray, God, that you would give us the grace to not just be people that love you with our hearts 
and our souls and our strength, but we, we also want to love you with our mind. We wanna love you with the way that we think about you. We wanna love you with the way we think about your word. We wanna love you with how we process what's happening in our world and, and see things the way that you see. So I've, I've prayed already so many times for today. I just, you've heard my prayers and I pray that you would answer them and meet us in all the ways that we need to be met. In Jesus' name, amen. I once heard a story about a turkey recipe, a Thanksgiving turkey recipe that was supposed to be like the best turkey recipe out there. And I was intrigued by that because here's my unpopular opinion of the day, at least one of my unpopular opinions of the day, is uh, turkey's the worst meat ever on the planet. I, I don't understand why you would cook that for people you love, especially on a holiday, there are better food out there, right? Food options like sushi and steak and short ribs. Like, my goodness, turkey. Honestly, you could make the best turkey in the world and it's like half as good as a chicken. And so that's my unpopular opinion of the day. But anyway, I heard about this recipe that was supposed to be amazing and I thought, I'm intrigued. How do you make a great turkey? And so as you read through the recipe, it was a family recipe that was passed down from generation to generation. It was really interesting. It had some stuff in there that, It was kind of unique and different out of the box. And the most unique thing that this recipe had was, it was like step one, cut off this side of the turkey. So actually the recipe called for like slicing off a whole section, a whole side of the turkey to make the overall turkey quite a bit smaller. And if you ask the family like, hey, why did you do that? Like, why is that a part of the recipe? Uh, The grandkids were like, I don't know. It's just grandma made it this way and it was the best turkey I've ever had. And step one said to cut off this part of the turkey. So we did. And finally they asked their grandma like, hey grandma, why is that? Like what does that do to the overall cook and flavor of the meat when you slice off that side of the turkey? And she's like, oh man, I did it because our oven was too small to fit a whole turkey. And so for generations, this recipe had been passed down and they've been like wasting perfectly good turkey meat, depending on how you define that, uh, wasting perfectly good turkey meat just because the recipe said to do it. Now, here's why I bring that story up. We often do what we do, we think what we think, and we even believe what we believe because of assumptions that have been made and passed down from generation to generation. And some of those are good, some of those are right, some of those are important. Tradition matters, despite what millennials will tell you. Tradition is significant and important and it matters. But we have to also ask the question, why do I believe what I believe? Why do I think what I think? Why do I uh, have this particular conviction about this particular thing? And both in family traditions like turkey recipes and also in theology, If we're not careful, over time what can happen is that we imbibe whatever this Bible Belt culture has offered us as true, and we never question it with the authority of God's Word. We never take our assumptions about what the Bible might or might not say and wrestle with what the Bible actually does say. And when you do that, you often find a very big distinction between what you thought and what the Bible actually teaches. And in nowhere is this more true, in my opinion, than on the issue of eschatology. Now, here's why I bring up eschatology. Because as I've said, we're in Mark 13, which is the most difficult chapter in the Gospel of Mark. It's one of the most challenging uh, chapters in the entire Bible. And the reason for that is, is multitude of reasons, but the biggest is that it's cracking open the door for an honest discussion about eschatology. Some of you maybe never heard of that word before in your life. It comes from two Greek words, eschaton, which means last or final, 
and logos, which means discourse or word. So this is the final word or the, the, the teaching or the doctrine of the last things. In other words, it's, uh, it's the doctrine of what happens when Jesus returns, what happens when Jesus comes back. And when it comes to eschatology, cultural assumptions abound. Assumptions about this thing people call the rapture. Assumptions about the great tribulation. Assumptions about heaven. Assumptions about life after death. Assumptions about what happens to the earth when Jesus returns. And when it comes to eschatology, many of us, especially if you grew up in church, especially if you're from the Midwest, a place like Oklahoma, many of us have inherited like a recipe that says cut off half the chicken, half the turkey, and then shove it in the oven. And we're not really sure why. We just kind of imbibed that and believed that and haven't really tested it with what the Bible actually says. And so here's our hope. We're going to take, we did last week, this week, next week, to carefully, slowly work our way through Mark 13. We did the first 13 verses last week, and we're going to try to ask the question, what does the text actually say? What does Scripture actually teach? And there are things in Scripture that are more foggy and things that are less foggy and more clear. And what you want to do is interpret the more foggy sections of Scripture with the more clear sections of scripture. And you want to ask questions of what did this mean to its original audience? What did this mean to the people hearing this? Because it can't mean to us what it never ever meant to them. First, we have to wrestle with what it meant to them, then apply what it means for us. And so that's what we're going to try to do is wrestle with the context, wrestle with what the text actually says, and then do some pastoral application for what this means for our lives. So here's my, here's my invitation to you. Whenever you find those things in Scripture that it's like, here's my assumption and here's what the Bible teaches, always let the Bible win out. Whenever you have that moment where uh, I say something and Scripture says something and they're contradictory, always let Scripture win out. Don't ever believe what I believe just because I say it. Let Scripture be the authoritative word on this issue. Amen? So that's where we're headed today. Let me, let me jump in by just reminding you of some context, where we find ourselves in the story. Uh, up to this point, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and where we find ourselves is a few days away from Jesus' death on a cross. He's in his last week. It's called Holy Week. And for us in the story, it's still Tuesday. Monday, uh, Jesus walked into the temple, and he began to, in outrage and holy anger, flip over tables. And he, and he was uh, uh, driving out the money changers, and he was, he, was, he, he was calling the temple and its religious leaders a den of robbers. He was saying, you guys have lost the point. This temple is supposed to be the presence of God dwelling with humanity, and you've distorted it. And now it's so dysfunctional that you're using temple sacrifices to make money off of poor people. And the religious leaders were then, after that, Tuesday shows up, they, they approach Jesus and they're trying to trap him in his words and try to get him to say something that they could use to arrest him and kill him, which is exactly what they're going to do in a few days. And yet Jesus turns it on them every time. Every time that they try to trap him in his words, Jesus exposes them for their brokenness, for their hypocrisy, for how religious they were and how, wanted, how they wanted power more than they wanted the truth. And so this is now happening where Jesus, something really dramatically takes place in Mark 13 with Jesus. Look at it in verse one. And as Jesus came out of the temple, that's not a throwaway line. Jesus leaving the temple is not just to leave and come back another time. That's a prophetic statement. Jesus is saying the glory of God has departed the temple. The very presence of God has left the temple and Jesus will never enter the temple again. And, and then he's gonna go on to pronounce judgment on it. 
came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings, pointing to the temple. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus is saying, I'm bringing judgment on this temple because it's completely dysfunctional. They've totally missed the point. Verse three, and as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be, the destruction of the temple, and what will be the sign when all these things, the destruction of the temple, are about to be accomplished. Friends, Mark 13 is Jesus answering that question that the disciples asked. This is not a teaching about the second coming of Jesus, at least for the majority of Mark, and it's debated about maybe even the whole chapter, which we'll get into next week. But at least the majority of Mark, all the way through verse 31, is actually not about the second coming. It's about the events leading up to the destruction of the temple between 33 AD and 70 AD, and then what the sign of the destruction of the temple would be. And so with that in mind, what we're going to do is work our way through verses 14 to 31. And what we're going to see is four phrases, four different statements that are made that are just culturally infused with assumptions that we need to spend some time dismantling with what Scripture actually teaches. All right, you ready? Two of us are ready. Everyone else is super concerned, but here we go. Mark 13, 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So the first statement we need to wrestle with is the abomination of desolation. What the heck is that? Right? That sounds like the sequel to the desolation of smog or some amazing name for like an 80s heavy metal band, you know? We're the abomination of desolation. Like, what, what, what is this abomination of desolation referring to? Literally, it reads, the abomination that causes desolation. Now, probably the most unhelpful, worst assumption that's made about this specific text, about this line, the abomination of desolation, when you see him standing where he ought not to be, uh, the, the, the worst interpretation is when people assume that this is talking about something called the Antichrist. You ever heard of the Antichrist? Of course you have, because you're in Oklahoma. You've heard of the Antichrist. Um, Friends, this is not about the Antichrist. Uh, Here's just a, I wish we could spend more time on this, but just a few things about the Antichrist that are important to keep in mind. Number one, Revelation never mentions the Antichrist, ever. He's never referred to. He's never symbolically portrayed. Revelation, the book of Revelation, never even one time mentions the Antichrist. In fact, the word Antichrist only shows up four times in your Bible. Three times in 1 John, one time in 2 John. So the Apostle John on both accounts, four times total. And friends, every time the word Antichrist shows up, it's in the plural, Antichrists, and it's lowercase a. In other words, the idea here is not that there's some figure that's going to come into the world one day who is this Antichrist that's going to lead a bunch of people astray. Actually, this idea, and John says this, this is the biggest thing, is that those antichrists have actually already gone out into the world. And that's John writing in the first century. So an antichrist or antichrists are anyone who is what? 
Antichrist, right? It's anyone who opposes Jesus and anyone who is, you know, leading people astray and denying core doctrines of the faith as John describes these in 1 John and in 2 John. Again, don't take this weird movie by Nicolas Cage or weird fictional books that you've read and read it into Mark 13. This is not about the Antichrist. So what is it about? Well, did you notice that line, let the reader understand? Let the reader understand. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is talking to Jewish men who are well equipped with an, a knowledge of the Old Testament, well versed in scriptures uh, in the Old Testament. They, they grew up reading and memorizing the Bible. And so the idea here is Jesus is saying, hey, let the Old Testament reader of the book of Daniel understand. Because this phrase, abomination of desolation, actually shows up in the book of Daniel on two occasions. It's phrased as the abomination that makes desolate. And you see this in Daniel 11.31 and in Daniel 12.11. And this is a prophecy that Daniel is making hundreds of years before Jesus enters the scene about this abomination that would lead to desolation. And this prophecy is really interesting. That word abomination uh, literally has this idea of this religious affront to God, something that's so offensive, and, it, and it's, 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 it's an affront to the true worship of God. And most historians and theologians believe that what Daniel was prophesying about occurred in 168 BC, so 168 years before Jesus entered the scene, when a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes IV captured Jerusalem, he broke into the temple, he desecrated it, made a mess of the temple, and then friends, listen to this, he took a pig. And if you know anything about Jewish culture, you know that pigs are unclean, they're super offensive, he took a pig and he sacrificed a pig on God's altar to Zeus instead of to Yahweh God. And this was a horrific abomination that led to desolation inside of the temple. In fact, it led to a war. If you ever heard about the Maccabees or Hanukkah, Hanukkah is about when the Maccabees rose up and fought back and cleaned up the temple. And now the celebration of Hanukkah is just remembering the cleansing of the temple and you know, all these amazing things that happened after that. But this is, what's, this is what Daniel's prophesying would happen is Antiochus Epiphanes IV busting into the temple, sacrificing a pig on the altar. Just horrible, horrible disrespect both for Yahweh God and for his people. And so Jesus is picking up on that context. And he says, hey, there's gonna be another version of that. There's gonna be another abomination that leads to desolation. And when you see that, you're going to know that the end of the temple is very, very near. So what is it? What is the abomination of desolation? Well, most scholars and theologians think that it was what occurred in 70 AD when Titus, who later is gonna become Caesar, a few years from now, Titus, uh, with his Roman army, surrounds Jerusalem, and then they break into the temple. They desecrate the temple, just like uh, Antiochus Epiphanes did. And then, instead of taking a pig, they sacrifice animals to all of their pagan Roman gods and to Caesar himself. And when, Jesus is saying, when you see that, that is the abomination of desolation. Sam Storm says it this way, while the city of Jerusalem was still burning, the soldiers brought their legionary standards into the temple precincts and offered sacrifices there, declaring Titus to be victor. The idolatrous representations of Caesar and the Roman eagle on the standards would have constituted the worst imaginable blasphemy to the Jewish people. That's what the abomination of desolation was. Now, if you're reading that and you're like, I don't know, that's a stretch. Don't take my word for it. 
Mark 13 has two other parallel passages, one in Matthew 24 and one in Luke 21. And and it's almost the same story, but from different camera angles, right? In Luke 20, I'm sorry, in Luke 21, verse 20, Luke does not use the phrase, the abomination of desolation. Instead, what he says is, quote, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation is near. So literally, Luke explicitly just says, Rome being surrounded by armies, that is the abomination of desolation. Now notice, did you notice the shift in Jesus' tone? Because in the first 13 verses, Jesus is like, hey, friends, between 33 AD and 70 AD, here's some natural things that both the world and the church can expect. Wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines, natural disasters that are occurring. There's going to be opposition to Christianity and betrayals and rejections that occur. Don't freak out. Don't think that the end is near. Calm down. Just continue to endure till the end. But then you get to verse 14. And in verse 14, Jesus' tone dramatically shifts. He says, hey, when you see the abomination of desolation, get the heck out of there. When you see the Romans surrounding Jerusalem, get out. Why is that? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down. They they had housetops that were like all connected to where you didn't even have to go down to your house. You could literally almost like run from house to house to house on the housetops and get out of the walls of the city. Nor enter his house, nor take anything out of it. Verse 16, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. Here's the second phrase that we need to wrestle with and look at today. The great tribulation. Now, if you've heard the great tribulation or heard of the great tribulation, there's all kinds of cultural assumptions that are immediately flooding into your minds. Uh, Things that we've inherited in American theology about the Great Tribulation, we almost instinctively hear that passage and go, oh, that's talking about some future event right before Jesus comes back. And even some will say, yeah, it's a seven-year tribulation. Have you ever heard of the seven-year tribulation? And there's all this debate about the rapture. Is it going to happen before the seven years or in the middle of the seven years or after the seven years? Are you, you know, well, there's all these ways of phrasing it. And it's talking about the seven-year tribulation that one day will happen right before Jesus comes back. But friends, according to scripture and the clear teachings of Jesus in this text, the great tribulation is not referring to a future event. It's referring to the events of April through September and 70 AD. The Great Tribulation, as it's defined in Mark 13, has already happened. Remember, context 
matters. Don't bring in things to the text that are not in the text. Don't bring in things from fictional books that aren't in Mark 13 or taught in other places of Scripture. Now, that brings a question about, like, but what about what Jesus clearly says in verse 19? Look at verse 19 one more time. It says, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Andrew, if that's true, if what you're saying is accurate, how do you process verse 19? Haven't worse things happened in the world since 70 AD? Like the Holocaust, right? Like the, the, the killing fields in the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. Like haven't worse things happened? How should we understand verse 19? Well, let me just give you a few things to think about. Number one, Jesus' words don't discount future times of tribulation. He isn't saying that there won't ever be any more struggle or strife or times of difficulty or tribulation. Friends, he's, he, just, if you think about history and you think about humanity, because of the world that we find ourselves in that's marked by sin, you and I will continually to see human sin play out, evil play out, violence and war and injustice and disaster and death, uh, both to greater degrees and to lesser degrees, you and I will continue to experience times of tribulation. Jesus isn't saying that there won't ever be any times of tribulation after this event. Second thing, the events of 70 AD were actually far more horrific than we often realize. A lot of us don't really know much about what happened at 70 AD. It was really, really, really awful. Uh, Josephus was a Jewish historian who actually lived through the siege on Jerusalem in 70 AD. He was an eyewitness of the R-rated horrors that began to play out, and he wrote an account of it called The War of the Jews. If you read this, it is just, heads up, it is horrific what happened in 70 AD. Sam Storms commenting on Josephus' work says this, "'Multitudes of thieves, zealots, and murderers had flocked to the city seeking refuge. The city was without law and order. Chaos and anarchy reigned.'" The city divided into warring factions who took turns attacking each other. If you've ever seen The Walking Dead, the later seasons, it was literally like that. Warring factions, minus the zombies, 70 AD was just like that. In one incident, more than 12,000 of the city's nobles and leading citizens were tortured and killed by the zealots. Those who tried to escape had their throats slit and their bodies were left to rot in the streets. Burial became an impossibility. Huge piles of cadavers filled the streets or were thrown from the city walls. Friends, the, the Roman emperor, or I'm sorry, the Roman army ended up burning food supplies and polluted the water sources, and it led to a horrific famine while the siege of Jerusalem was taking place. People were starving so badly that parents were selling their children for a loaf of bread. Selling your child. Can you think about how hungry you have to be to sell your child? There are reports, and I know this is horrible, there are reports of families eating their children after they would die. People are resorting to cannibalism. There's reports of people eating leather and animal dung and trash from open sewers. It was awful. Rome crucified around 500 people per day outside the walls. Virtually everybody that lived through the siege was either killed or sold into slavery. The realistic estimates are that around 1.1 million Jews died 
in the siege of Jerusalem, and another 100,000 were sold into slavery. Friends, this was the great tribulation. It was absolutely awful. Um, uh, If you think about the global population at the time, 1.1 million is a significant amount of people. 100,000 sold into slavery, significant amount of people. That leads to the third thing to think about here is that in verse 19, Jesus is using familiar Old Testament judgment language. When he uses that phrase about this is going to be such a tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be, that way of speaking was a very common way of talking in the Old Testament about any judgment that God would bring on people. Let me, let me cite a few references here. Exodus 11, verse 6. There shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before and such as shall never be again. Joel 2, verse 2. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Look at the language. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Ezekiel, talking about the impending Babylonian captivity. Notice the language that is used in Ezekiel 5. And because of all your abominations, God says, I will do among you what I have not done, and the like of which I will never do Again, Daniel 9, verse 12. Thus he has confirmed his words, which he has spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us a great calamity. For under the whole of heaven, there has not been done anything like was done to Jerusalem. Uh, this is language used over and over. We can keep going. If you ever read First Kings and Second Kings, it's, it's really interesting. It'll be like, this king was the worst king that's ever existed and no king after him will ever be as bad than the next king. This king was the worst king that has ever existed and there's never gonna be a king after him that was as bad. And you're like, is scripture contradicting itself? I mean, how do you understand? No, that was a common Jewish way of talking to try to say, the king was really bad, right? So when it says, this is such a great calamity, a tribulation that has never been or never will be, it's saying, this is going to be awful. Here's the point, friends. The great tribulation mentioned in Mark 13 is not some future event especially some seven-year thing right before Jesus returns, it is an established fact of history past. It has already occurred. And it doesn't mean that we won't experience times of tribulation. We will. It doesn't mean that we won't experience suffering as the people of God. We will. But here's an interesting thing to think about. We have record of not one single Christian dying during the siege of Jerusalem. Now, I'm not saying that none died. I'm sure that some did. But we don't have any records of any Christian dying in the siege of Jerusalem. Do you know why? Because they took what Jesus said seriously. And they didn't interpret to mean some, something 2,000 years into the future. They thought Jesus was referring to something that would occur in their lifetime. And when they saw the armies of Rome surrounding Jerusalem, they got the heck out of there. And by nature of that decision of listening to Jesus, they actually survived. This is the Great Tribulation. Let's keep working our way through. Verse 28. But in those days, after that tribulation, like this is immediately, in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Look at this line. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he, will send, <clears throat> then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, 
from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, the abomination of desolation, Titus with his army surrounding Jerusalem, you will know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The third phrase that we need to examine together is this phrase, the Son of Man coming on the clouds. The Son of Man coming on the clouds. Now, let me pause here for just a minute. I want you to hear me as clearly as you can. All historically Orthodox Christians believe that Jesus will physically, bodily return from heaven to this earth. All Christians believe that. That is the best day for us as Christians. Amen? When Jesus returns to make all things new, I believe that. We believe that. The Bible clearly teaches that. And we're going to look at many examples next week as we wrap up Mark 13. Many examples of where Scripture teaches that Jesus will return to make all things new. If you ever have a pastor or anyone tell you that Jesus isn't going to return, run away because they don't believe what the Bible clearly teaches. Jesus is going to come back. But with that said, this phrase about the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory is not about the second coming of Jesus. It is not about Jesus coming from heaven to this earth in his final return. It's just not about that. Even though it's so tough, like you read it and you think, Jesus, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, that has to mean his return. His return is is taught in Scripture but not here in Mark 13. That's not what's being said. How? How is that passage not about the final return of Jesus at the end of history? Well, let me give you a few things to think about. Number one, Jesus plainly says that this specific event will occur in that generation's lifetime. Verse 30, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. You have to do backflips and matrix backbends to prove that that verse didn't mean what Jesus just plainly said it meant. These things are gonna take place when this generation is alive to see it take place. He just clearly says it. Number two, Jesus is using Old Testament language that was familiar to his disciples. Look at verse 28 again and think about this. But in those days after that tribulation, The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Contrary to what is often assumed when we read a text like that, Jesus isn't urging us to be on the lookout for blood moons. Can we stop with the blood moons thing, please? Right? If it's you or your family, someone is gonna text you about a daggum blood moon and go, look, Jesus is about to come back. That's not what this verse is about. It never was about that. I don't know what a blood moon means astronomically. I'm sure it means something, but it means nothing theologically, okay? It's super cool to look at, take photos. It doesn't mean anything biblically or theologically, okay? He's not saying be on the lookout for blood moons. Be on the lookout for bizarre astronomical events. Expect the sun to literally shut off its... It's light and not shine anymore. Stars to physically fall from heaven. Remember, friends, Jesus is speaking to a group of people who are saturated in their Old Testament. They understood its concepts and its imagery and its phrases. And this type of language can be found over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament to teach to dramatic things that are happening on the earth 
and its imagery is stuff in heaven is chaotic and crazy. So it's actually referencing stuff on earth using heavenly languages to depict it, or heavenly shaking to depict it. Let me just give you a few examples, and there's many. I don't have time to give you as many as there are. Let me just give you two. Describing God's judgment on Babylon, which occurred hundreds of years ago, Isaiah 13 says this, for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Let me give you another one. This is in Ezekiel 32, describing the desecration of Egypt that already has taken place. Ezekiel 32 says, When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. And I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. And all the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. When I make the land of Egypt desolate, when the land is desolate of all that fills it, when I strike down all who dwell in it, then they will know that I am the Lord. Here's the point. The most common way that Jewish scripture and imagery and language talks about these uh, national disasters on earth is through heavenly shaking language. Sun going dark, the stars falling. It's common and all over the Old Testament. And then finally, the third thing to think about is what Jesus is saying here about the Son of Man coming in the clouds is a direct fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. Now remember, the entire gospel, all of Mark, is about Jesus. It's about who he really is. The section of Mark at the beginning is asking, who is this man, you know? And then the second section is like, he is the Messiah. He is the son of David. He is the son of man coming on the clouds. What do you believe about this man? What do you say? Who do you say that he is? And with that in mind, the most common way that Jesus has been referencing himself is how? Son of man, son of man, son of man. All through Mark, Jesus has been talking about himself as the son of man. Who is the son of man? Well, that phrase, that title is a title from Daniel chapter seven. Let me read it to you and listen carefully to what's happening. I saw in the night visions, Daniel seven, verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And notice this line. And he came where? To the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Here's what Daniel 7 is saying, that there's this one like the son of man. In other words, a person who looks like just a normal human person, one like the son of man, but he's coming to the ancient of days, which is a way of talking about God the Father, the creator of all things. This son of man is coming to the ancient of days. And, and then Daniel says that all dominion is given to him and all power, and all glory, and all authority. And, and this Son of Man is like seated with the Ancient of Days. Friends, this reference to Jesus coming on the clouds of glory as the Son of Man is not a reference of Jesus coming from earth to the, I'm sorry, from heaven to the earth. 
Rather, it's about Jesus going from earth after his death and resurrection and ascension back to heaven where he busts through the gates of heaven and he sits down at the right hand of God the Father and he is given glory and power and dominion and all authority over every single thing. That happened when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended in the heavens. This happened. The Son of Man has come in the clouds. He is now the person that has glory and authority over every nation, every tribe, every, every tongue, every kingdom, because Jesus is the king. And there's never going to be a day where he's more king than he is today. He is the king right now who is seated on the throne right next to the Ancient of Days. This is so much better than Jesus, you know, mysteriously coming back and no one knowing it. And, no, no, no. He is alive and seated in heaven right next to the Ancient of Days in this moment. Some of you are like, I don't know. It is clearly said this way in something else Jesus says in Matthew 26. Listen, Matthew 26, Jesus is on trial. Caiaphas, the high priest, is asking him questions. Notice what Jesus responds with. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, From now on, you, Caiaphas, will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is something that occurred when Jesus rose from the dead and after 40 days ascended into heaven. And here's the whole point, friends. The destruction of the temple that occurred in 70 AD is Jesus's vindication. He was who he said he was. These religious leaders, they thought he was just a nuisance, some political leader, a religious zealot. Jesus says, nope, I'm the son of man. And you've rejected me and you've turned the temple into something disgusting. I'm gonna reject you in response and I'm gonna actually bring judgment on the temple. But those who receive me with humility and repentance, they will know that I really am the son of man. The destruction of the temple is gonna prove that I'm seated at the right hand of glory. N.T. Wright says it this way. This is not about the return of the Son of Man, but about his coming to God after suffering. It is about triumph and vindication, about simultaneous judgment falling on the system that has opposed God's call and God's gospel. From Mark's point of view, it is about the complete vindication of Jesus, his resurrection, his ascension, and the outworking of his prophecies against the temple as sealing the whole process. So we believe in the second coming of Jesus. Absolutely believe it. It's taught in scripture, but not in Mark 13. That's not what's being said there. All right, last thing. Are you still with me? Yes. Okay, some of you are still with me. Here we go. Last thing, verse 27. And then he will send out the angels. This is right after the great tribulation, right after the son of man coming on the clouds. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Here's the fourth and final thing I want you to see is this phrase, gathering people from the ends of the earth. Now on the surface, what does that sound like? Well, if you grew up like I did, you read that and you're like, that's rapture language. Jesus is gonna suck people off the planet. And, and, And by the way, we will talk about the rapture next week and you'll get to hear at least my hopefully biblically informed opinion about the rapture. So we'll get to that next week. But the cultural assumption here is that's about what happens when Jesus comes back and and either draws people to himself when he returns or about the rapture. Friends, that is not at all 
what is being said in this text. This word angels in Greek is literally messengers. And sometimes that word messenger means angels in the way that we think of it, holy spiritual beings that are, are helping with God's purposes in the world. Uh, at other times, that word messenger literally just means messenger. It means someone who is bringing the good news of the gospel on their lips to people that are in darkness. And so here's the point of what's being said. No matter if it's actual angels or not, the point is that after Jesus's death and resurrection and ascension, when the, when the religious leaders thought that they had snuffed out Jesus and his, 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 uh, his church and all of Christianity, when they thought that they'd killed him for good, Jesus is like, no, I'm the son of man coming on the clouds. And guess what? Between 33 AD and 70 AD and 70 AD to today and to today until Jesus comes back, he is gathering all people over all the earth to himself. That's what he's doing. They thought they killed Jesus, and here Jesus is gathering more and more people to himself. This is so beautiful and powerful. Now, there are places and people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language in so much of our world that are calling on the name of Jesus as Lord because Jesus isn't dead and his bones aren't in some grave in Palestine. Jesus is the son of man who is coming on the clouds. He is the one with great glory and authority. He's the one with dominion and he has been drawing people from the four corners of the earth to himself ever since. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna close. I wanna close like this. Where do we go from here with this? Here's what I would say. Things are not always what they seem. And I don't mean just in Mark's gospel. If you're anything like me, you grew up thinking Mark 13 meant one thing, and then as you study, as you learn, as you wrestle with the context, you're like, things are not what they seem. (laughs) Son of man coming on the clouds didn't mean what I thought it meant, and this phrase didn't mean what I thought it meant, and things are not what they seem. But I mean even bigger than that. Pull out for just a minute and think about all of Mark's gospel. The religious leaders thought that Jesus was just a man from Galilee. That was their assumption. He's just some man from Galilee. He's a a threat to our authority and our power. We've got to kill him and get rid of him. But here's the reality, friends. Jesus is the son of man coming on the clouds. And they realized that when the temple got destroyed and leveled, they realized that they have done something to kill the son of man who is coming on the clouds. And yet he still has authority and he still has power. Here's the whole point of today, the whole point of Mark's gospel. It is not to try to win you over to some theological system of beliefs that I hold or some of our other pastors hold about what scripture teaches about eschatology. That is not the point. The point is not to win you over to my eschatological position. The point is to show you that Jesus really is who he says he is. And you've got to wrestle with that. Was he just a teacher? Was he just a religious leader? Was he just a zealot? Was he a political revolutionary? Or is he God who came for us, who died for us, who rose again for us and is currently seated in heaven alive? You've got to wrestle. And then not only is this assumption about Jesus versus the reality kind of blowing our minds, but there's another assumption that's made. The church is small and weak and fragile. It's this burning light, or it's, our, it's a flickering light. It's about to go out. But the reality, friends, is that Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell won't prevail. Think about being an early recipient of this gospel account. You're reading Mark 13. You're reading about the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory, all these things, and you're hiding out in catacombs for fear of persecution and fear of death because the Roman Empire is so massive, so unstoppable, so terrifying, and they're coming for you. 
And you sit there as a Christian in 67 AD and you're thinking, how are we going to survive? We're this weak, fragile, small movement. How are we going to survive? Friends, because of the fact that Jesus is alive and he's building his church, think about this. You can get on a plane right now and fly to Rome, and do you know what you're going to find? Ruins. Ruins of an ancient culture that thought that they were unstoppable, and now you and I as tourists can pay for a small fee, walk through their rubble, and look at all the history of what they used to be. But right now, you can get on an airplane, and you can fly to Mumbai, India. You can fly to Cambodia. You can fly to South Korea. You can fly to parts of China. You can fly to Ghana. You can fly to Iran. You can fly to Ukraine. You can drive to downtown Oklahoma City. And do you know what you're going to find? The church of Jesus Christ alive and well. The church is doing great. The church continues to grow, not because the church is great, but because Jesus is great. And Jesus is alive, and hell itself can't prevail against the mission of the church. Hell itself can't prevail against what Jesus is doing because he is the son of man coming on the clouds. He is in the process of sending out his messengers and drawing all people to himself.